0: dag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. I dag skal vi tale med en god ven af huset, den tyske politiske teoretiker Jan Werner Müller, der netop har udgivet en ny bog, som er udkommet på informationsforlag. Den hedder Demokrati styrer. Det gik op for mig den anden dag, at Angela Merkel har været tysk kansler i hele min 16-årige søns liv. At i al den tid, hvor han har levet, der er det hende, der har været kansler i Tyskland og jo på en eller anden måde regeret i Europa. Jeg kom ved den lejlighed også til at tænke på, hvor mange specielle øjeblikke, der har været med Angela Merkel. Der har været det helt fantastiske moment, hvor hun sagde, vi har er schaffendags, vi klarer det i 2015 med flygtningekrisen, som de kalder det. Mange synes, det var helt forfærdeligt. Jeg synes, det var et fantastisk øjeblik at sige til Tyskland, vi har en humanisme til at håndtere det her, vi kan tage imod dem. Jeg synes, det var fantastisk, at tyskerne kom på banegårne i et Europa, der ellers var travlt optaget af at sig selv, og tog imod flygtninge, kom med legetøj og bamsat til flygtningebørn. Uanset hvad der skete bagefter, var det for mig et meget stort øjeblik. Til gengæld var det for mig et meget, meget lille øjeblik, Den gang Angela Merkel, hun krævede, at grækernes folkevalgte præsident skulle afsættes, og man i stedet for skulle indsætte en teknokrat, og det samme i Italien, da man lod de økonomier, som ikke fungerede politisk, erstatte med teknokratledere, hvor man afsatte demokratisk valgte ledere til fordel for de rige landes udpegede teknokrater. Og så er der det for mig aller, aller største øjeblik, som var nedtur for Angela Merkel. Det var, da Greta Thunberg angreb hende på Klimatop i New York i 2019 og sagde, how dare you, you stole my future. Og der gik det op for mig, hvor stort et ansvar Angela Merkel faktisk har for, hvad der skete er sket i de år, hvor vi ikke gjorde nok for den grønne omstilling. Derfor har jeg glædet mig meget til at tale med Jan Werner Müller, for han er jo tysker og er en der er optaget af demokrati, en der er meget optaget af Europa. Og min samtale med ham handler først og fremmest om, hvad har vi lært af Angela Merkel, hvad er hendes eftermalet. Det er udgangspunktet for vores samtale, og vi vi kommer meget vidt omkring derefter.
1: First, I, I want to ask you, because it's no secret that you're German, and I want to first ask you about the German election. Angela Merkel, who's been the biggest European leader for us here in Denmark for, I mean, I'm 47, in our, in our lifetime. I think everyone here, something about her they hate and something about her they love. Some love the fact that she opened her arms to immigrants at a time when no one else did it in Europe and still considered heroic. I do, I do that. Others are very angry about the way she handled the Greek crisis. But she's, she's overall, she's been just been a very, very influential politician for us here in Denmark as well. How, now she's stepping down. How do you see her legacy?
2: I completely agree that it's not a simple matter of thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, I think many people are quite right to feel conflicted about her legacy. She has done many good things. She has kept both Germany and to some degree the European Union as a whole together together at times of peril and crisis. Some might even say she played an important role in keeping what is sometimes rightly or wrongly called the liberal international order together when you know, the usual guarantor of that um, basically happened to be absent because we had Trump, Trump in the White House. At the same time, I think there have been some dark sides as well, which aren't always seen, um, quite beyond her role in the, in the Euro crisis. Um, Think of the fact that during her era, the European Union de facto allowed the rise of autocracies in Hungary and to some degree in Poland. That could never have happened without her de facto tolerance, often animated by economic interests especially, but not only to do with the very, still very, very powerful German car industry. Think of the fact that despite this image of Merkel as the leader of the free world, Germany has generally been very gentle Vis-à-vis Beijing, because Germany did so well during the euro crisis, partly because it kept exporting like crazy to China. Uh, If you think about Nord Stream two, it's also clear that Germany is, on the whole, yes, there are also sanctions and other stuff going on, but on the whole, is still relatively gentle vis-à-vis Moscow. So I think this idea that you know here is sort of uh, an obviously sort of liberal leader, despite her. Mm -hmm background among a, for some people, a rather conservative party, I think that image certainly needs to be nuanced. And if I can maybe add one more consideration, sure. maybe particularly relevant for future years, I think she also did have an effect uh, for which she shouldn't be blamed. I mean, this is sort of not her, her exclusive fault. But my sense is that um, a result of her long time in power is that many Germans sort of started to think that democracy equals by and large, the absence of really strong debates or sort of open conflict. That it's only really democracy if basically everything's very quiet and you have you know, minor policy differences and everybody sort of conver- converges on some supposedly correct technocratic solution to something. And at least for me, that's not really a good understanding of, of democracy. I think that, underestimates the importance of having real choices in a democracy, and maybe less obviously, the fact that very, open, very often open conflict is completely okay in a democracy. There should be some boundaries, maybe we can talk about that later as well. But this sense that you know there has to be, things have to be quiet and only consensus really equals a well-functioning democracy. I mean, that's not something that sort of she would have propounded as a doctrine or sort of lectured right. people on. But I think people sort of got used to this, got used to this idea. And that might in the long term be not such a great legacy.
1: And that's also a point in your book that conflicts are not bad. The important thing in democracy is how you handle and how you cultivate your, your, your conflict. And that, I think, is a very important point. In extension of what you just said, I think Germany has been kind of an exception in Europe when you look at it from Denmark, because you've seen very passionate debate, dangerous debates also in in Great Britain with Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, very flamboyant characters. In France, you have this very weird experiment with basically Macron being a one-man party leading the country Mm -hmm. and he's opposed to to, uh, Marine Le Pen, who changed the party name. You have these hectic movements and then you have the yellow vests and it seems that everything was in play in other great European powers and Germany was extremely stable. And part of that stability was this coalition building that she didn't, her last government was not a traditional right-wing government, that she made governments that included the social Democrats. And we kind of took the conflict out of politics. And for us who grew up with politics is also a football game. I'm with the left or I'm with the right. And I think that's something that people have in their hearts. Now you've seen this experiment in Germany with these grand coalition governments. H- how do you think we should evaluate that?
2: So if I can try to stick with your metaphor of a football game, yes, there's a sense that if it's not really a game or if you have something like, maybe some of you remember this, Germany, Austria, I think in 1982, when it feels like it's rigged, you know, the outcome is already clear then you know, people don't feel it's a good game. And maybe in the worst case, you have fans invading the pitch, saying there isn't enough going on here. And of course it's conventional wisdom that one side effects of the grand coalition and of, again, this particular rhetoric of saying there is no alternative, was the, ri- was the rise of something which for a long time people said was impossible in Germany given its past, namely the rise of a far right party. Now, one of the interesting things more recently, I think, is that despite the fact that there is such enormous discontent with how the government managed the pandemic, and I think for good reasons, I mean, this is not just all cons- you know, crazy conspiracy theories or kind of aimless discontent, very good reasons to be upset about what has happened in Germany since about summer, 2000, summer 2020. Conventional wisdom, I think, would have said that discontent is gonna go to the party that seems to be the pure protest party because the alternative for Germany is the only party that is not in government at any level. So we have 14 different coalitions in 16 different federal states, plus federal government and so on. Everybody else is involved somewhere. Everybody else is implicated in some form. They are not. So one would have thought, okay, if people really, really want to express discontent, that's what they're gonna do. But as you know, at least if we can trust the polls at the moment, that hasn't really happened. Why not? My two hypotheses about this, uh, to be confirmed, I'm not saying this is sort of empirically obviously, obviously correct, would be A, that by now, unlike a few years ago, the IFD is so clearly connotated in the eyes of many people as de facto an extremist, if not outright neo-Nazi party in certain ways, that basically nice bourgeois Germans don't want to go anywhere close to them. So had they, had they stuck with, you know, what today you might say is sort of the Le Pen script, you know, where we talk like this about immigration and like that about Islam and so on, but we're not gonna mess with, you know, a certain view of the past. And we're not gonna constantly talk about the Holocaust and, and basically come out as revisionists and so on. If they had stuck with that script, maybe it would be different, but in many ways they didn't. So that's hypothesis number one, if you like. The other one, and that I think also goes to, I think an important broader theme in democratic theory, is that whatever else you might think of them as a party, I think the Free Democrats, the Liberal Party, actually managed to plausibly perform opposition in the Bundestag, in the parliament. People often have said in the last couple of months, oh, parliaments were disempowered everywhere. You know, there were no real debates and so on. I'm not so sure that that's really really the case. Um, At least when, you know, new legislation was introduced in in the last 12 months or so, there really were debates and a genuine back and forth. And of course, the IFD also tried to be like the Republicans in the United States, sort of the Freedom Party, but the actual free Democrats also sort of pushed a certain agenda centered on the concept of freedom, but not in a crazy conspiracy theory, uh, irresponsible kind of way. And I'd like to think, maybe this is a naive view from a democratic theorist, that people are just ultimately Going to be reconciled to a decision if they feel that yes they had a chance to have a party in the parliament that made their points you know they went on record there was a chance to engage in the end of course they didn't have the majorities to go a different route but there was a chance to have this out in the open so i could imagine that that might also have contributed to the sense that look there's a kind of not crazy not extremist alternative if you really be want to be if you want to be really critical And at the same time, uh, this is, if anything, hopefully democracy reinforcing as opposed to democracy endangering.
1: Hmm. Do you see now, I'm curious what it has done to the political culture in Germany that you had this grand coalition governments. I mean, if you're a young leftist activist here, then you are part of a party and you want them to put pressure on the social Democrats and you want them to realize your, your policy. So even though you're far right out on the left or you're part of a green movement, you feel that you're part of the parliamentary game and that's part of your, your activism. I spoke to Robert Habeck, you know, who's the number two person uh, for the green ones. And he said that it was very difficult in this parliamentary situation in Germany where they would call themselves a left-wing party, but they would most certainly be governing with someone that he called neoliberals. And he was very, anxious about what it did to the grassroots of uh, the party. Can you say anything about what it did to the political culture in Germany to have this grand coalition?
2: So I think this is a very good, we're just to say very difficult question because I think it raises again, very tricky issues for how we think about democracy more broadly. Um, On the one hand, uh, I think the Greens actually didn't always entirely live up to the task of being a genuine opposition party. And that's partly because I think for a long time, they thought, okay, we're so keen to get back into government, you know, which they last were in, in 2005, um, that we're gonna be sort of, you know, not play up too many differences with either Christian Democrats or social Democrats. And I think personally, there would have been more leeway to mark these differences. And broadly speaking, I think that would have been, would have been better for the poker culture as, as a whole. At the same time, and this is why, again, I'm saying one can be legitimately be conflicted about this, um, it's, of course, always a danger if uh, it becomes easier to say, oh, look, but, you know, this party has a radical history or this party is full of, you know, super radical activists and they can't control their own grassroots and so on and so and so forth. The Greens, as you know, went into one extreme where many people in the end had the feeling that actually the membership was pretty much completely excluded from what was really going on. And it was two people who were sort of hashed it out behind behind closed doors, no doubt giving the impression of being very professional, very focused, which a lot of people liked. I mean, to be to be fair. The Social Democrats took a different route. And I think it's a it's a good question to ponder whether that's ultimately more successful but also how much that really lives up to democratic standards. So as you recall, like many parties in Europe today, they said, look, the membership has to decide. We cannot just mm-hmm. autocratically you know, impose somebody chosen in the, as the cliche has it, smoke filled room. So, you know, long campaign, many people standing, different teams, a man and a woman standing. And of course, Olaf Scholz losing that contest and people being elected who for many people were kind of not really very acceptable, to put it very mildly, not very acceptable characters on the national on the national scene. In retrospect, now, it actually looks like a very smart move that they basically kept the membership happy by saying, look, it was a very open-ended, drawn-out uh, contest. <laughs> you had your say, but we're going to nominate. And remember, they nominated Schultz very early on, August last year, earlier than anybody else, basically. We're going to nominate somebody whose basic promise, I mean, to put it, maybe a bit polemically, if I may, is basically to be more Merkel than Merkel herself, to be like Merkel 3.0, super responsible, you know, no funny stuff about visions and, and so on, but you know, basically politics is a craft, um, I self-consciously present myself as a kind of bureaucrat who really knows this stuff, is extremely responsible, is as concerned about German finances as Merkel ever was and, and so on. So a kind of divergence between what the membership seems to like and then what is considered to be basically an electable electable candidate. And again, I think one can one can easily think of accusations of sort of this being a bad faith exercise. At the same time, if you happen to be a social democrat, you might say, "Look, but this is this is the way that nowadays you can actually gain power." And many members, you know, might actually a recognize that, and b, interestingly, have also been so far very disciplined. So there hasn't been a lot of sniping from the sidelines in terms of, "Oh no, no," but you know, this is not really who we wanted, and so on. So the kind of implosion that you remember happened in 2017, all of a sudden, after Schultz has started off very strongly, <laughs> that hasn't really happened so, so far. So whether that's a really conscious learning process or not, I'm not, I'm not in a position to, to judge, but it's certainly a remarkable, remarkable development. And I think it will obviously lead to some soul searching among other socialists and social democrats in Europe as a whole.
1: And do you think, and this is also a difficult question, but it was more difficult to answer three months ago, I think, because we've seen all over Europe. Yesterday, we saw the conservatives in in Great Britain, they were actually raising the public support for some public services and raising the taxes. And we've seen people contesting neoliberalism, not good, not ending it, but contesting it. And we've seen that there is an openness to more social democratic policies and there's a skepticism towards austerity. And now in Germany, it appears that there might be a possible left-wing government with the Linke, the Greens and social Democrats. I don't know if they'll get to 50% of the votes. I don't know if they can figure it out, but do you see the possibility of real change in German politics, of, of real new uh, new economic paradigm and a new way of governing? Germany and taking part in Europe? So
2: I don't really do predictions, especially not about the future, but as a more general observation, I would say that many observers in recent years, I mean, to the extent that it's become a bit of a cliche, have invoked these sentences from Antonio Gramsci, who said that, you know, sometimes the old order is dying, but a new order hasn't really been born yet. And in this interregnum you might say, see really strange political phenomena. and we can all think of pretty strange political <laughs> phenomena in our, in our era. So that makes a lot of sense to people. but I, myself, I think can take this a step further and say yes, you know many people have been talking about the supposed end of for short neoliberalism since 2008. But for one thing, just because something else might have become somewhat discredited, it doesn't follow that real collective agency, if that doesn't sound too highfalutin, is going to be constituted by somebody else. And moreover, even though sometimes people think that, you know, the lessons of a particular crisis sort of is obvious and sort of a crisis explains itself, that, of course, is not true. There's always going to be a kind of vacuum. And that can, it seems, persist for a long time. And whether that changes is, is really up to you know, other 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 actors really coming together, be it as parties or as, as as movements, and certain interpretations becoming really plausible. I mean, just as one footnote to this, if if I may, I mean, just sure. I mean, we've already, I think sort of forgotten this, but many people after 2008 said, look, this is obviously the end of neoliberalism. It's been exposed oh, yeah. as, you know, it's just greed and deregulation doesn't work, and 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 so on. But then when you think about, you know, the question, which was the party or movement that kind of made the most, in quotation marks, of 2008, at least when I think about the United States, it's a movement that nobody sort of had predicted or thought of as a possibility, namely the Tea Party, uh, which in many ways paved the way for Trump, which kind of, through its symbolic power, I mean, it, it may have looked very ridiculous to many European observers, you know, all this kind of 18th century play acting and so on, but both through its symbolic power and its mobilization, sometimes grassroots, sometimes astroturf but nevertheless real mobilization had an inordinate amount of influence. And all the people who felt, oh, now it's automatically going the other way were kind of proven wrong. And I, if I may add a footnote to the footnote, sure. sorry, that's what you get sure. if you invite professors. um i think it's it's somewhat similar with with the with the pandemic where we sort of swung from an early framing where people said oh we're all in the same boat here obviously you know for once i mean even madonna remember told us from her bathtub that this was a moment of solidarity and and so on (laughs) now you know just a few months later the new conventional wisdom was the other extreme that no actually we're not in the same boat Um, A, some people have already drowned. Uh, Some people actually all along were in a luxury yacht going off to their private island. So we were never in the same boat, really. And basically, we've learned again and again how deep some inequalities are. You know, it's not that we didn't know about them, but they've been exposed even more, even more radically. And that is not wrong. But the job of a good politician or the task I think of an imaginative movement is precisely to say yes the experience was not truly collective in the sense of a homogeneous experience but somebody who is sort of creative in this regard nevertheless is going to find a way to appeal to people in such a way that some form of collective agency is constituted I mean you could have said also that look you know in the second world war If you were in the UK, if you were a lord, you know, you could sort of retreat to your country estate and you didn't have the same war as a worker who was sent to the front. Nevertheless, in 1945, there's all there's all of a sudden the Labour Party that basically does make it plausible to say we were kind of in this together. We do need each other, we depend on each other, and this is one justification for the construction of a welfare state. I mean, I realize it's more complicated than that, obviously, but, but just to kind of give a paradigmatic example of how this is, nothing is automatic, um, And if if a sort of countervailing force, a different kind of collective agency isn't constituted, which today may have to look very different from at least sort of some of the, the classic uh, formations of collective agency in the 20th
1: century, then this vacuum may well persist. One last question about Germany, which will also lead us to your book. You're, you're living in America where you have this very high level of uh, polarization. You have this very, there's this quote in your book that I really like of trickle down aggression. I never heard that one before, but you have a lot of passion, you have a lot of ideas. And I think the debate about politics in America is very, very interesting. I think we look at it from here and think it's more inspiring than what we see in Europe. Also, because you have more collective agency in America. I mean, you have the, the, the feds, you have, you, you have a big market. You can really make change. You can make a green transformation if you want to, but you have this polarization. Then on the other hand, you have German politics, which is so different. And so where you have the, we call it machines of building consensus here in our correspondent Germany, which has stability and which is admired by everyone. Every bureaucrat in Denmark admired Germany because of the stability, and they always say they're responsible. Merkel was the hero of responsibility or the heroine of, of responsibility. When you look at these two different versions of, of of democracy, which one do you think is more equipped to deal with climate change? Because it seems to me that there's a lot of possibility actually for action in America, that there is a a connection between the green movement and the presidency and in germany you know you have very good public debate you have high level of education stability but i'm surprised by how slow germany has been to to make a green transformation this is a difficult question as well
2: uh, yes but like most difficult questions also a good question uh and you'll forgive me if i maybe preface an attempt at an actual answer by a, a slight remark about this issue of trickle-down aggression. So that's not from me, that's from the feminist philosopher Kate Mann. And it's it's supposed to capture, I think, an important phenomenon that we've seen in many countries, namely that the, the, the rhetoric at the very top about who's really a citizen and who's a danger and who needs to be excluded and so on is never just rhetoric. Um, and eventually it does trickle down. So Trump rallies were associated with higher levels of violence. Uh, someone like Modi never himself, you know, necessarily says anything super inflammatory about Muslims, but plenty of other people in his party do and everybody knows, you know, what is really intended. So what some people might dismiss as, oh, it's just a bit of fiery rhetoric. It does eventually show up as real violence on streets and squares. But at the same time, going back to something we talked about earlier it's perfectly okay to be uncivil in the sense of attacking your opponent you know really marking differences and so on i mean this is i think one of the peculiarities about political life in the u.s that there's this longing for oh it's only really good if it's bipartisan and if we're all nice to each other (laughs) and of course that's a perpetually disappointed disappointed um hope it would be much better if people said conflict is okay what is not okay is if conflict basically transgresses boundaries, such as the one I was just talking about, where you basically say, no, some people don't belong. They are a real threat to the polity as a whole. They should ideally be you know, thrown out, persecuted, suppressed, including voter suppressed and, and, and so on. So I think that's the more general point about, about the importance of, of, of conflict. Now about the, the specific issue, I think actually there's an increasing number of voices in Germany itself Who by now would say look um historians 50 years from now might say yes uh Merkel was you know seemed to be this 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 uh, paragon of responsibility but nevertheless in a certain way she may have been quite irresponsible if we think about long-term developments I mean she seemed to be poised to really make a difference in this regard a I mean forgive forgive me for belaboring this this cliche, but you know, here's somebody highly trained, somebody who understands, you know, physics, probably chemistry, probably all kinds of things really well. So really understood the danger in a way that perhaps uh, a recent president over here may not have fully understood understood the the danger. Plus she had a huge majority, plus she had, you know, a well-functioning state, plus she had lots of resources to distribute. If you think back to the Germany of the nineties, when you know we we had constant stalemate between an upper house controlled by an opposition and the government people were all complaining about this was this sclerotic system and so on you never hear about these things anymore because basically everybody could be kept happy by distributing enough 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 funds so it was a relatively i mean i know it may not have felt this way all the time but in certain ways it may have been a relatively easy calm time and yet Merkel, I think it's fair to say, never really took the lead in addressing these long-term perils to the planet as a whole. She also, by the way, as a footnote, despite some promises a couple of years ago, never really kind of crafted a new architecture for the European Union as a whole. Uh, you alluded to to the question of refugees. I mean, she, of course, tried to find a common approach in 2015, 2016. Eventually, was just dropped. Has never really has never really happened. So I could imagine historians being fairly critical in terms of saying, look, she didn't do anything horribly wrong, or or you know, was remotely comparable uh, to some of the other figures we've seen rise in this era. But given Given what she had by way of resources on all exactly. kinds of levels, she kind of didn't, didn't really do, didn't really do enough. She always only did just as much as was necessary to sort of keep it together. And of course, you know, we can think of other, we can think of other leaders who at a certain point really took a risk. I mean, maybe this is a too cliche an example for, for some people in the audience, but someone like Brandt with Ostpolitik really risked something. I mean, there was, you know, it was really touch and go whether this was gonna go through, but he truly believed in it, partly because of his own personal background. And with Merkel, I think it's much harder to identify, with a possible exception of 2015, any moment where you could say, look, she really understood the challenge and she really did everything to get people on board with you know, as global a solution as possible to what after all is a global, is a global threat.
1: So let's return to your book now that we actually have been overlapping with during several of the questions and answers. What, what was your background for, for writing Democracy Rules? How did you come up with the idea and the approach, which I think it's a very original approach? Well, that's
2: nice of you to say. So the, it was partly generated by a certain dissatisfaction with the way that uh, we've been talking about what many people see as a crisis of democracy. One interpretation has simply been, well, basically it's the people's fault. Um, they brought this on themselves. Uh, the irrational masses always ready to go for Brexit or to elect Trump or to be you know, seduced by some great uh, demagogue spouting falsehoods. On the other hand of course there's been the view that no no it's not the people at all who are at fault it's corrupt elites who in one form or another are to blame because you know they gave us this kind of globalization uh they rigged you know domestic democratic arrangements in their favor and so on I don't want to take a stance on you know which one is more right or wrong my point is simply in both cases even though these are very different views of course we end up talking about people be it a large group of people Or not so many people, you know, the many and the few. And I felt we weren't talking enough about institutions. Um, Now, this to some people sounds inherently conservative, you know, but we should talk about mass mobilization and so on. I agree. But democracy doesn't work without institutions. And one thing that has also been problematic with those who, you know, have made it their calling and for good reasons to kind of defend democracy has been a kind of difficulty in identifying what's really crucial and essential for democracy, what really justifies certain institutions and practices in terms of really the underlying principles of freedom and equality, and what might be sort of much more contingent and maybe we're gonna leave behind one day because our world is changing, so why wouldn't the institutions of democracy sort of change change alongside that? So it was kind of an attempt to basically take us back to basics, and then also refocus us on institutions, such as for instance, political parties, and you'll be glad to hear the importance of professional news organizations and journalistic practices and,
1: and so on, and how and why they still matter a great deal for democracy. And I think that was a very inspiring approach, not just mentioning the media, but you know, for the last 20 years, and it's kind of ending now with the 20 year anniversary of 9-11 and the ending in, in Afghanistan, we've been talking a lot about the enemies of democracy. And it's like, there's this Karl Popper tradition of saying, well, we are democracy and we must find the enemies. And some would say that it's the super rich. Another would say that it's the Muslims, but it's kind of a question of values. They have different values and we have the democratic values. But in your book, it's more, what are actually the material conditions for democracy? What is, I love this phrase, uh, this uh, critical infrastructure of democracy and I haven't been used to thinking of it like that, but I think it's obvious that we must think of it like that. What's, it, what's in essence uh, the meaning of, of your concept of uh, de- critical democratic infrastructure?
2: So like physical infrastructure or like things such as the post office, it's about the ability to basically reach others and be reached by them. So as I think everybody would agree, democracy is not just about being able to cast a ballot on election day. It's also about the ability to basically form a collective popular will through open debate, exchanging arguments, having parties confront each other and so on. Um, so in other words, it's also about what is sometimes called the communicate, basic communicative freedom. So free speech, but also free assembly, free association and so on. But if we had to use these communicative freedoms in total isolation so if all i could do was you know constantly spam you with my unpublished op-ed articles um or if you never sort of basically could join an organization that multiplies your voice and allows you to reach others in certain ways democracy would suffer a great deal and like physical infrastructure in some countries that clearly has decayed in recent decades. I mean, I guess, unfortunately, again, the United States is a a prime example of this. I think it's plausible to say that this kind of critical political infrastructure can decay. At the same time, it can also be transformed. Again, it would be wrong to say, "Oh, it's only it's only working if everything is like <laughs> in the 50s." I mean, this is the th- I think what people who constantly lament the decline of people's parties tend to get wrong. That you know, it's sort of they they fixate on one particular historical moment, and any deviation from that is seen as inherently pathological. <laughs> no, it is it's changing, and I think we'd be less inclined to sort of wildly swing from one extreme to the other in terms of how we think about these transformations if we got much clearer about the criteria as to what we expect from this critical infrastructure, and as usual, a bit of history helps as well, if we don't wanna fall into the trap of imagining a golden age when supposedly everything was so much better. I mean, the, the particular thing I'm thinking of, of course, is, is the sort of enormous swing in how we think about social media. Some of us are old enough to remember a time where we're all told that, you know, Facebook was gonna mean the liberation of everybody. Twitter was gonna mean democratic revolutions everywhere. You know, 10 years later, we have some of our colleagues writing things like Facebook equals fascism.
0: Uh, <laughs> Twitter is the
2: end of, Twitter is the end of, you know, any kind of uh, agreement on even the most basic facts and so on. and with all due respect, I think both extremes are wrong. But if anything, this wild swing is an indication that we don't really know what we're looking for. And we have a very hard time to make sense of these developments because we've sort of forgotten what this infrastructure is there in the first place. And once we get that right, I think it also becomes much easier to really talk about, you know, regulation, to talk about what might be a positive transformation and what might not be, as opposed to sort of flailing and, and and you know, sort of especially during the Trump years sort of living from tweet to tweet and panicking about everything without
1: any clear guidelines, what we should actually be looking for. And another point that you examine in the book and draw on other people's examination is something that I always found was very difficult to really figure out. is the, is the connection between economic inequality and political inequality. I mean, we, we've, we've learned to tolerate a great deal of economic inequality in our societies, but political inequality is an absolute norm, I think, that one man, one, one vote, and we're very sensitive about that, whereas people are super, super rich. It's not something that we're, we're very critical of. Can you say anything? I mean, you, you, you point to the investigations by Julia Cashier that I, that I, that I did, didn't know, but you point to several investigations. Can you say anything here about the, the connection between this, this uh, concentration of wealth money and politics and the functioning of democracy?
2: Well, I'm glad we have about five hours left to address (laughs) what of course is now a very simple question by by comparison. (laughs) So what many observers in this debate, I think have rightly pointed out is that, that anything that says, okay, political equality has to mean complete equality of influence is not really plausible, because then we would have to have so many restrictions on what people can do in a society, how they can try to shape others' opinions. Then we would basically have to tell people, no, you cannot found a new think tank to propound your views, be it on the left or be it on the right, because there isn't one on the other side right now. So not really quality and and so on. So it's a difficult ideal to live up to. It's inherently difficult. At the same time, there's so much wrong with our existing democracies in this, in this regard that there's still a hell of a lot one can actually do. And I think this is an area where sometimes, in my, in my view, Europeans are very quick to say, you know, uh, the US is so crazy in this regard, you know, $14 billion spent on federal elections last year. It's so obvious, you know, Congress is full of millionaires. You know, this is the going rate for a Senate seat. This is how much money you have to have and so on. And yes, it is crazy. But I'm not sure Europeans are really entitled to sort of turn up their noses quite quite so easily. There's a lot wrong with, I mean, I don't wanna make big pronouncements about, about Denmark, but in certainly a number of other countries, there's a hell of a lot wrong in terms of how the existing system, not just in a sense mirrors existing inequalities, but tends to reinforce it and to compound it over time. So one example that Julia Caget, whose work I rely on in this regard, gives is that for instance, in France, uh, political donations to parties um, basically get you tax reductions. That's another way of saying yeah. that ultimately the poor end up subsidizing the political preferences of the rich because you know if you can deduct a lot of money from your inter- inter- income tax bill, that money isn't there anymore for the state and the poor who don't pay any income tax at all and can't get these benefits, plus don't of course have the money to spend in most cases anyway, they get nothing in this in this in this in this process. Hence, one suggestion in the book, and again, this is not original, quite a number of people have put have put forward this idea, is to kind of put this critical infrastructure of democracy into the hands of citizens themselves and say, look, people should have equal amounts to spend on politics, and they should make their own decisions about what kind of parties or movements they want to they want to finance. And then we are still going to have very significant inequalities. I mean, this is not going to really level the playing field completely by any by any means, but it might reduce some of the existing pathologies and maybe less obviously it might also help with reinforcing what I and many others see as a kind of important element of democracy as being a sort of open dynamic, potentially even creative system. So rather than simply having a, a situation where as a party you get money based on your last election result, which introduces a kind of inherently conservative bias, If we had something like vouchers, you might say, oh, wow, there's a new party in between, and I really want to support them. Um, And conversely, you might say, well, look, sometimes I want to punish a party at the ballot box. So an example would be, let's say French leftists who really felt that Hollande was a disaster. But at the same time, they said, look, it's important that a socialist party remains a counterweight to Macron. So I can punish the socialists at the ballot box, but I can still give my money to the socialist party and keep them in existence. But if elections and financing are very closely tied together, that sort of room for maneuver isn't, isn't there. So long story short, I think, I think there are alternative suggestions for how we could deal with the financing of democracy, which you know, always has to be dealt with somehow, that I think would, would at least somewhat increase equality Obviously, as with all these things, there's a bit of a chicken and egg issue in terms of, but you know, this is a great idea. But who's really going to be pushed? Who's going to push for it? Because for it to be realized, you already would have to have plenty of people, you know, who would be much more invested in ideals of political equality than they currently than they currently are. So I I recognize that difficulty, but I think that shouldn't prevent us from putting out ideas, which hopefully some people might find attractive.
1: Something that I find very hopeful is that you've seen radical ideas being proposed by Gabriel Sugman or French economists taken up by American candidates and being transformed into policies. I mean, I, I, it's a time to propose ideas. I think some, some ideas are being picked up and turned into policies. And then when we see in Europe that some of the French ideas that they're, they're taken up by American politicians that we use them mm. here. So I think isn't it also a good time to be an intellectual in, 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 in America? I feel there's a debate and there's a lot at stake and there, there's a connection between the development of ideas and the development of policies and grassroots. And isn't that a very inspiring place to be in at a very inspiring time?
2: Well, I'm not sure inspiring is quite the word I would have, I would have used because um, January 6, 2021 may have been a preview of things to come as opposed to really the closure. Of, of an era. So I think there are also many reasons to remain very very concerned, obviously. but yes, it, it, I think it's true, you're right that there is a kind of sense of openness and maybe somewhat more room for, for experiments than there may have been through, again for lack of a better term may have been the case during a sort of long more or less neoliberal era. At the same time, again, if I may switch to the to the more negative assessment of all this, I think some of us, I think, are wondering, okay, so if you look at the holders of concentrated wealth in this country, and of course, you know, they're not all evil, point is not to demonize them, but of course, a lot of them do finance what some of our colleagues in political science would simply call plutocratic populism. So relentless cultural war, radicalization of the grassroots, and at the same time, basically tax cuts, 80% of which benefit the 1%. So these people had a pretty good half century, one would say, Yes. And yet, and yet we already have in a two party system, so very different from European multi-party systems, we already have one party that in many ways has turned on democracy itself. So unlike sort of maybe somewhat stereotypical explanations of the twenties and thirties, where people would say, look, you know, uh, people just felt they had no other option. You know, communism was coming, so they had to go for fascism. I'm not sure, I'm not saying that made it okay, but that's the sort of, you know, explanation that many people can can understand one sort of starts to wonder here. So if basically it's been great for the ultra wealthy, you know, Clinton, Obama, with all due respect to all the good things they did, never really questioned the basic arrangement. So what's gonna happen if there were to be something more radical, what kind of levels of basically countermeasures are we going to, are we gonna see? So. It's, I I agree with you that it's it's an important time for new ideas and and one should certainly not be jaded about uh, the system as a whole, despite the fact that obviously it contains so many blockages and as you you will have seen now, it's sort of, you know, ex-democratic politicians who are at the forefront of lobbying efforts against what their own party is trying to implement by way of new new ideas. So sort of almost cartoonish, cartoonish confirmation of how the system sort of works works on the inside. But at the same time, it's all happening in the shadow of basically a sort of continuing threat to democracy, given the, given the overall structure of a two-party system where one party is no longer truly committed <laughs> to entirely playing by the rules. So in that sense, yes, it's exciting, but frankly, I could also imagine it being
1: somewhat less exciting in certain ways and not be a good thing too. <laughs> I have one last question uh, for, for you. When I talk to my kids about democracy, I would say at times, well, I'm a little scared if China produce more wealth than we do, and they, if they succeed in the green transformation better than we do, that if the output of the Chinese communist capitalist system will be stronger than ours, that democracy will seem a lot less attractive, you know, if, 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 and if they gain political power globally. And, and then I say, I'm afraid of the future of the democracy. And they say, why are you so afraid of the future of democracy? You knew everything that was to know about climate change. You knew what to do, what not to do. And yet we are now in an absolutely terrible situation where what was 30 years ago, a worst case scenario, is almost the best we can hope for. So why do you keep favoring democracy when it absolutely didn't deliver on climate change? And I know this is a very, very difficult question, but you've written several books on on, de- on democracy and I, I'm curious about your reflections to that, uh, to that question. So I would say there's
2: good news and bad news. Um, the good news I think is that throughout modern history, it's always been tempting to imagine some enlightened autocracy, you know, choose the, the 10 best technocrats <laughs> and they will magically insulated from all pressures end up doing the right thing. And I think we've, because we sometimes I think suffer from a certain amnesia about the less well-known aspects and lessons of the 20th century. I think we've forgotten how often that was actually the temptation when people went for for things like what back in the day was called bureaucratic authoritarianism. So not fascism in terms of mass mobilization for war and violence and so on, but precisely, precisely the promise that look. You know, people are too irrational or there are too many interest groups and too many special interests, you know, pushing. So let's put in charge the, oh, I don't know, the military in Latin America. And they will have none of these pressures and it's going to work out. And I think as everybody will agree, it never really worked out. Um, And in fact, you know, it produced horrendous, horrendous outcomes for, for many, many people and less obviously. Many of these regimes turn out to be highly, highly corrupt on top of everything else. So the fantasy of the disinterested wise ruler, I think is always going to be there. And I think we'll always be sorely, we'll always be sorely disappointed. The bad news though, is that I have some sympathy for the, for the, for the worry that I think you also uh, allude to, and you probably that have, have thrown at you by your, by your kids as well, which is that democracy has a really hard time basically processing the conflicts that have been created by climate issues. So there are many, many other areas where we can say, look, uh, it's not true that there's a single rational solution in the way that technocrats would, would suggest to us. You know, people have different values and they judge the evidence differently. So even if you're not a denier or conspiracy theorist or anything else, you would say there's some room for how we deal with this conflict. And the beauty of democracy is that we can break it sort of down into manageable segments. Sometimes this side wins, sometimes the other side wins. People can live with the outcome over time and so on. And yes, mistakes happen all the time, true. But by and large, this has worked fairly fairly well as a system. But it kind of presumes that you could internalize conflicts within democracy. And I think one of the strongest arguments Mm. for why this might be an illusion in this case is that look, climate isn't a sort of thing that you can break down into manageable conflicts within democracy because it's in a sense outside democracy. It's everywhere. It's the environment for democracy as a whole itself. And it's much stronger sense than, you know, an individual species might be, or the forests are dying and so on. All that I think was still sort of in the, in the range of, yeah, we can sort of break this down into clear policy alternatives and so on. And with something as complex and as all encompassing as climate, that might be much, much harder. I'm not saying it's, you know, and therefore democracy is doomed or it could never be done. But I think this is sort of conceptually, structurally might be a particular challenge. So um, on that basis, I have, I have some sympathy for, for voices who say, look, um, maybe you have to kind of be less complacent about this view that, oh, but democracy, you know, has sometimes been late <laughs> in addressing a crisis, but eventually we always got there. And, you know, this is the point often made by 19th century thinkers like Tocqueville already, that you know it looks very chaotic with democracy initially, but in the end, they sort of always get their act together. But that in itself can become a trap if too many people think that, and they don't recognize that sometimes there might be a qualitatively different challenge. And then to kind of be complacent and say, oh, but we've always kind of managed in the end, <laughs> might sort of create a particularly pernicious feedback loop. Now I realize that this hasn't really answered your question in any no, shape no, no. form but I thought it was very, I hope it was vaguely interesting anyway.
1: That I think that was actually a very enlightening. Well thank you for your time and thank you for keeping up your work and inspiring us here Jan thank you.
2: Thanks for having me. All good wishes. Bye bye.
0: Det var så min samtale med Jan Werner Møller. og bogen hedder som sagt Demokratiets styre. Den kan købes på informationsbutik på vores hjemmeside på information.dk. I næste uge tager vi det et skridt videre og taler om Europa på den helt store klinge, som de siger i Cykelsportens Verden. Der taler vi nemlig med den hollandske forfatter Gert Mack, som har skrevet en bog, der hedder Store Forventninger. Og den bog Store Forventninger, den handler faktisk om den periode, jeg også lige har talt med Jan Werner Møller om. Den handler om, hvad der skete i Europa i det 21. århundrede. Fra vi troede, vi havde besejret al ondskaben og bare skulle til at asfaltere med endnu mere os selv, til vi ramte klimakrisen, finanskrisen, migrationskrisen og alt det lort, som vi står i i dag. Det taler jeg med Gert Mark om i næste uge. Jeg håber, vi høres ved.